Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Welcome back. Today we have a very, very special treat in store. Uh, in publishing, there are few relationships as sacred as that between author and editor. It's one of respect, deep trust, occasional chafing. An author and editor that can work in sync with each other can make a brilliant book into a best-selling book. Today, I coaxed two of the most wonderful women into the Vintage Podcast Studio. We have Liz Foley, who is a wonderful editor at Vintage. She has edited everybody from Murakami to Erin Morgenstern's The Night Circus. And for the past couple of years, she has been editing Kirsty Logan. Now, Kirsty Logan came to Vintage with her book, The Grace Keepers, a book that follows a floating circus in a flooded world uh her new book the gloaming is out on the 19th of april this year and i think you are gonna bloody love it it is set on a bewitched island it's got selkies villagers that turn to stone uh, boxers prima ballerinas and of course with all of kirsty's writing a whole lot of heart i sneakily wrote down some probing honesty seeking questions uh, for each of them to ask each other so this is what we're calling the secret editing room and we are letting you through its doors. Please enjoy the insight, giggles and wit of Kirsty and Liz. I'm Liz Foley, I am publishing director of Pavel Secker and I'm Kirsty's editor. And I am Kirsty and I am Liz's author. Having written on your own for so long before being published, were you excited about having someone else edit your work or was that a scary prospect? Both. Mm -hmm. um, it is exciting because I like feedback. Um, I was always the kid at school that was like, can I have a star, please? Um, but it's quite scary as well, and I still actually find it really weird to think that anyone who isn't me has read something that I've written because it's kind of like somebody reading your diary, except that you have purposefully handed them your <laughs> diary for them to read. So it's a strange um, kind of raw experience to have somebody read something that you've written and that you've lived with for so long and this book in particular was really long time coming for me so it's actually the first book I ever wrote when I was um, doing my undergrad degree and I didn't want to do my dissertation so <laughs> I wrote a novel I did actually write my dissertation yeah. also but I was like I'm gonna write a novel yeah. instead um, and it was terrible and I put it aside and then I completely rewrote it from scratch and then I put it aside and then I completely rewrote it from scratch and then I put it aside and then I wrote some other novels and then there was just something about the idea that I couldn't let go of. So then I rewrote it again, completely from scratch. Um, and it's only the same book in my head. It's like different title, different setting, different characters. But to me, it's got the same heart in it as this very first one. So I feel like I've been writing this book for 10 years. So wow. it was quite scary then Because I didn't know that about the, oh, the you okay. know, that it was the first thing that you wrote. Yeah. What I mean, remains from that first draft? I think the basic theme of the book or the idea, this idea of um, being asked to grow up before you're ready to mm -hmm. and trying to navigate an adult world when you just want to kind of retreat back into home. Like I still feel now, you know, I'm nearly 34 mm. and I still feel like as soon, when something goes wrong in my life, my first thought is always... I want to go home mm. and I don't mean yeah. home to my flat that I own yeah. with my wife I mean I want to go back to my home when I was a child when my mum fixed everything for me 
And it's a fleeting thing yeah. because you need to put your big girl pants on and yeah. be a grown up, you know. <laughs> but that's always my first thought is like, I want to go home. So I think that was like the idea that was through all those different drafts, even as everything else changed, what stayed the same is the main character and her mm-hmm. age and her kind of being forced to grow up a bit before she was ready for it. Mm. So it was scary, yeah. um, but I liked it as well. Because on the one hand, you know what you want to say, but you never really know if you have said it, so you need someone else to say to you, you haven't said the thing. The fresh eyes on it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you go through, even so when you got to this draft of it you then go through quite an intensive editing process yourself don't you separately before it comes to me oh yes so <laughs> so so I'm in a couple of workshop groups so when I write the novel which takes me a while anyway it takes mm-hmm. a year or so for just a rough first draft and then I go through it with one of my workshop groups and then I make loads of changes and then I go through it with my other workshop group and make loads of changes um and then I show it to my agent, Catherine, who also has mm-hmm. suggestions. So then I do another round of edits and then you see it. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then it still needs an absolute yeah. ton of edits when you see it. So, um, yeah, I've already been over it. This is another reason why I feel like I've been writing this book for yeah. years and years. <laughs> go through many, many mm-hmm. versions. Yeah. And one of the things you do that I really love, which I give as a piece of advice to new writers now, is that you, you read it to Annie, don't you? Yeah, so everything, oh, my lovely wife, Um, everything that I write, I read it out loud to her. I mean, obviously it took a while for me to read this to her. I actually read a big chunk of it. Um, We went on a holiday to Iceland and we drove out to this glacier, which I'm not going to try and say (laughs) because I'll mangle the Icelandic. (laughs) But um, it's a really long drive because we were staying just outside Reykjavik and we went, it's about a six hour drive each way. It's so worth Mm. it. It's this glacier on a black sand beach it's my favorite place in the entire world it's just incredible when I die put my ashes there Uh, it's just I don't know if you can actually yeah Um, don't want to get in trouble with the Icelandic government nature reserve yeah yeah but it's just it's so incredible and like all these um big chunks of blue ice have been pulled out to sea and then the waves are crashing in and it's this oh it's just like being on another planet it's just so amazing but we were on this drive and I read a lot of the novel to her um on that drive Mm. um but it was really good and it helps a lot to make sure that everything that I write is in my voice. Mm, yeah. Literally, you know, in my writing voice, but also in my spoken voice. Because if I'm reading something something out loud and I stumble over it or it sounds weird, then I'll change it so that it, the voice sounds. Yeah. And like your writing's me. very rhythmic as well. And I think that must be part of how you achieve that effect is through checking that it works in a spoken Yeah, maybe. Way. And also <laughs> on a practical level... When you publish a book, you will have to read from it. Yes. So there's no point putting a bit in that you can't, <laughs> you can't read. read. <laughs> like the name of an Icelandic glacier. Oh, this is a terrible question to ask someone. What was your first impression of me and my work? Ah, uh, so this is an easy one for me to answer because it's okay. very vivid for me when I read the first when I read the Gracekeepers for the first time. Um, because I immediately from that first scene uh, with the circus and the bear, it was just. I thought, wow, this is somebody's brain that I want to get to know. <laughs> it's like, it was so atmospheric and the writing was so beautiful. And, uh, you know, as I've said before, you're very quotable. And just, I wanted to live in that book. And I read it all in one go. And my particular vivid memory is of cycling into work the next day really extra fast so that I could get other people who I knew would love it to start reading it immediately so that we could 
be the people who published it. So my first impression of your work was very good. <laughs> oh, I remember you telling me that about the cycling. Yeah, I really remember that cycle ride mm. because I was so excited about it. Just the world you created was so brilliantly done. And language-wise, it was so, you know, and thematically, I just found your writing is very rich. And I love that, the layers and how it kept me thinking. So, yeah, right from the beginning, I was hooked. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Describe the moment you decided you wanted to be a writer. I don't think there's ever been a time that I didn't want to be a writer. Um, I always made up stories when I was little and would actually write these terrible little plays, which I would force my family to watch <laughs> me perform there's various things that I think I would do if I wasn't a writer like what would they be well for a while I wanted to direct music videos okay that's I think cool. I would still like to yeah. do that um because I'm very visual and I feel like a good music video is like a short story it's got the same shape yeah. to it so I would still like to do that I'm really inspired by music videos still I use yeah. them on my little Pinterest mood boards and things like that um so I would like to do that I'm also weirdly obsessed with consumer programs or like things about scams so like watchdog you and yours basically anything (laughs) that people phone up and complain about stuff super into it don't really know why so I would like work as a watchdog researcher not at all connected to what I actually do you would never think but that's brilliant and and also that kind of wide-ranging kind of curiosity that you have I think does show Mm. in your writing I can see a link what drew you to the proposal for the gloaming Mm. Well, the gloaming, you I saw a little bit of it early on. And then I had the whole manuscript, I think, when, mm-hmm. we, when we were actually looking at it. So similar to with the Gracekeepers, it was that thing, that first scene where you have the beach with the jellyfish on. You're so good at like openings for books because <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's really visual, really makes you curious about what's going to happen in this book. A sense of kind of threat and then also this line between the sea and the land which becomes so important in the way the book unravels um so again and then meeting these characters these siblings that you know lived there in this very unusual place in this unusual house I was again sucked in really quickly into you know wanting to go on the story with them I think I'm asking you one now aren't I has my editing changed your work as a writer yes definitely it's made it much better um, of course. I, I Generally, everything that you say, I agree with. I just don't want to do it because it's hard. <laughs> I remember vividly in this, doing the editorial notes for The Gloaming, sending you one bit where I said in, the, in my letter, this is the bit where you're going to throw these notes on the floor. And then you emailed me going, yes, that was the bit. I did throw them. I didn't <laughs> literally throw them on the floor, but I did go, what? Yes. Um, I, think, I think we got there, actually. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, that there was an element of it that, you every round of notes you would include this element and every round I would be like I'm just going to ignore that part (laughs) Um, and then I read the whole thing out to to Annie and then she focused on the exact same part and then I was like damn it (laughs) good Annie this was right all along (laughs) but the important thing is obviously saying what you want to say and Mm -hmm. my job is just to help you say that in the most effective way so it is always your book and your call yeah I mean I remember you saying that something along the lines of it's your name on the cover so mm. you need to yeah. feel comfortable with what's yeah in, inside the covers which I think I feel really privileged to have that kind of relationship because I know that not every writer has that type of relationship with their editor and um, 
I certainly enjoy it. I want you to edit everything I write, like my emails and everything. Good. I want to edit everything you write. <laughs> just to make yeah. them just to make them better. Um, but yeah, it's good. And it's difficult sometimes because you, you work so hard and you do so many rounds of edits and mm. you think, this is just spot on. This yeah. is, she's going to love this. And then, you know, you get back. I do love it. Here's five pages of yeah. notes. <laughs> you're like, okay, then. Yeah. You know, your first instinct is to go, I don't want to. What's wrong with my baby? My baby's beautiful. Yes. What are you saying? But then, of course, you realize that you already think the baby is beautiful. It's just maybe we can also wash the baby yeah. and put <laughs> matching clothes on the baby. You know? It's a brilliant metaphor. Make it look even yeah. nicer. <laughs> Ooh, if you could persuade me to write any book in the world, what would it be about? Ooh. That's a good question. I could persuade you. The thing is, I don't feel like I need to persuade you because I feel like you're already writing the books I want to read for me already. I feel like, you know, you're doing that. I can't wait to see your face when you see ones that I've got planned to write. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I think you're going to be like, what are you doing? Yeah. That's your part of the process is to come up with a thing that I didn't know that I wanted to read that I do want to read. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, do you think that that is the privilege of being a literary fiction editor? Yes, I think probably is. I think in different kinds of publishing, you can be much more prescriptive or you're supposed to be much more prescriptive. And you would say to your best-selling crime series writer, do not go off piste and write me a cookbook. Write me the next one in this series because this is the platform that we're building for you. But literary fiction is amazing like that because it's why the whenever you have those algorithms that show you what the retailer wants you to read next... With literary fiction, it's always a complete mishmash Mm. because every literary book is different. And even by the same writer, every literary book is different. So there's always something new and fresh and it's very difficult to then define a particular strand that is going to be... You know, I think that fans of your writing recognise your writing and they recognise it and they love it for qualities that aren't really based around a subject matter that I could say to you, write me a book about werewolves. I think you'd write a brilliant book about I was, werewolves. No, I'm yeah. like, ooh, I want to write a werewolf book. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, you know, I don't think you need to be defined like that. And mm. that is, a, I think that is a particularly liberating thing about literary fiction is that everything can be different. Mm. And would you ever be tempted by that kind of Netflix model of, okay, so, you know, people are watching loads of things with this actor in mm. and they're watching lots of things like this and lots of things set in Sydney. Therefore, mm. we'll put this actor in Sydney and he can be a detective. Would you ever be tempted to mash some elements together and produce, have a writer produce something? I think that happens more on the non-fiction side. So I think certainly our non-fiction editors keep a really close eye on what the zeitgeist is and what the things and tones and themes that are coming up are and then they might actively commission somebody to do a book on a particular political topic or a particular you know cultural phenomenon but again in literary fiction it seems to happen by itself so the mermaid thing that's happening at the Mm. moment has happened over the course of years because obviously you've been writing this book for a long time the Mm. other books that are coming to publication this year that are on related themes have all been in the works with those writers separately working away in their garrets without communicating with each other years ago the films that are out all of that's working on different timelines and it just happens to coincide at this moment so that's something that I think is really I mean do you remember there were loads of Robin Hood films for a while and Mm. then there there were loads of body swap films when we were younger and it feels like those things do sort of come around and they're in the air 
but they must be coming from different places on different timelines. So yeah, I don't think, I don't think. We'd, I mean, again, maybe on the more commercial side and on the say in genre publishing, it would be easier to go, ooh, we've got this amazing novel. Let's change the setting to this amazing hot setting. But again, you can't really do that with literary books because it's all so integrated. Mm. And also, our writers, I think, are responding to all of the same things that you know that everybody in the world is responding to. So you do naturally get like things that make people are anxious about. So, you know, we have seen a lot of submissions on kind of biotech themes and things like that because that's an, a source of anxiety that's out there in the world at the moment. Um, which, you know, three years ago we weren't seeing things like that so much. Mm. It's funny how certain things pop up. I just saw The Shape of Water, which mm. I absolutely loved. So good. I'm not going to do a spoiler in case people haven't okay, seen it. Yeah, haven't but there's seen it this yet. one element, this one plot element that's in it that I was like oh my god I did that in the Gracekeepers and there, oh, he, really? there's no way Guillermo yeah. del Toro hasn't read it and done it on purpose it's just that there were these ideas in the air that clearly both of us yeah. have like followed a specific train of thought to yeah to find this one plot element which I think is weird because it's quite a specific plot element oh, that I can't I haven't to see seen it. somewhere else yeah. so but yeah I just was watching it and thinking that's very strange I think particularly also if you work with, as you do, with kind of folklore and fairy tale, the different prisms and angles that people approach those things from are, are quite interesting. So, mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that's something you've been interested in for a long time, isn't it? The fairy tales and, and then it's what twist you put on them is the thing that makes, say, the gloaming, the fairy tales that are in the gloaming, mm. um, particularly modern and resonant and kind of politically topical. And that's the angle you're seeing it at now that obviously when those tales first came up they were appreciated in a completely different way yeah I think people worry a lot about ideas and so so and so is going to steal my idea mm. or my I thought my idea was my idea was unique and it's not someone else's written it and I think people worry too much about that because it's you know they're the same ideas come around and around and mm. around but it's how you do them and how you approach them and so yes mermaids for example lots of mermaid books but as far as i can see i'm the only one that's done mermaids and a queer love story and scottish yeah that combination is what makes it unique so you can take elements from other things but it's how you combine them and your own writer's voice and background and the way that you see the world that is what makes it different you know you could take five writers and say to them go and write me a story about werewolves but they would all do a completely different story yeah yeah if you were locked in a lift with one of your characters which one would you pick i like that question Mm, so hard i don't know if i'd want to be in a lift with any of them (laughs) the thing is i think that i don't know if this is true for all writers but for me none of my characters are me but they're all an element of me and I don't think any of us want to be confronted with ourselves. <laughs> Locked in a lift with yourself. Yeah, yeah, that would be terrible. Like, I sometimes think, would I be friends with me? Would I go out with me if I was somebody yeah. else? And, like, I don't think I would because, you know, they always say, or oh, this is what my mum used to say, is if you if you really viscerally dislike someone, it's probably because there's some element in them that's what you fear or dislike within yourself. Ooh. Otherwise, it wouldn't bother you so much good maternal wisdom i know she's wise that mama logan um but i think that's true and i think oftentimes when i write a character it's who i fear i am or an element of myself that i'm trying to work through in fiction 
Um, mm. Fiction's very cathartic. Yes. Um, so, for example, Mara in The Gloaming, she's quite, certainly at the beginning of the book, she's quite self-absorbed, she's quite immature, and I fear that I am those things. <laughs> but then through the book, she grows and changes, and I guess that's an attempt to make myself grow and change. Um, so I don't know if I'd want to hang out with any of them, just because it would be uncomfortably like looking at an unflattering photo of myself <laughs> <That's> <laughs> for <good> ages. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, would you want to be in a lift with any of them? I wouldn't want to be in a lift with the bear. No, that <laughs> wouldn't the last very long. You wouldn't, wouldn't be in the lift for very long. <laughs> um, okay, my question. Oh, what do you enjoy most about the editing process? Mm. Red pen. <laughs> yeah, no. I, what I really like is the puzzle nature of it. Of feeling because my approach when I'm editing is to go, okay, I'm an ordinary reader. I'm sitting down to read this book, and what are the things that are kind of making me feel slightly uncomfortable, or I'm not quite understanding, or I want more clarification on? And then the kind of fitting, because obviously when you move one thing, another thing moves out of place. And so the puzzle nature of it, of kind of fixing something or making something, you know, and, and particularly that interaction with the author of where you feel like together something new has come out of a conversation that is better than what was there before. I mean, that's the that's the kind of big endorphin high for an editor, is <laughs> feeling like you've moved forward with something and that the author is really happy with it and that you're really happy with it and that something has been built. So, yeah, that's the, you know, my brain just sort of works in that way of sort of moving puzzle pieces around. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's probably what I like. Do you like doing puzzles? It. Are you good at Tetris? I'm not particularly good at Tetris, no, I'm not. You're no, I think maybe editing puzzles is my... Yes, I'm very good at packing. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Make everything fit in the suitcase. <laughs> yes. I have a very tidy desk. I'm very good at packing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and you're always very coordinated as well. Mm. It's, it's a, yeah, it's all essentially some sort of disorder that I have <laughs> that makes me an editor. Extreme organisation. Yeah. I read this quote once that I really liked that was saying something along the lines of an author needs to know what the reader never should which is that all the elements of the story are arbitrary and any one of them can be changed whereas the reader should always feel like everything is exactly where it yes naturally belongs so how do you develop this sense that all the elements are arbitrary and you can change any of them i think that just comes with yeah that just comes with approaching like as a as a reader and then knowing obviously it's it's experience i suppose is that having edited lots of books, you sort of start to realise the things that often come up, because often it's quite, this, with different writers, it's the same things that come up that obviously it's harder to see when you are the person who's written a book. But it's not always easy, I'd say. You know, it is that thing of you feel like you push that domino and then everything collapses. <laughs> or you push it and one bit is clear and everything else still looks like the beautiful domino palace you've made <laughs> mm. or you knock the first one but you've taken away the next one so yeah. nothing falls yes. exactly <laughs> that's also yeah. bad I suppose yeah. <laughs> mm. okay so I have a question mm. do you have a tip for writers who maybe have just got their first set of feedback and they are feeling a bit shell-shocked by it yes I do because I think that must be a really difficult moment because it is so, as you've said, it's so exposing to give your work to somebody who is essentially on most levels a stranger and ask them to criticise it because that's the, that is the dynamic. 
Um, it is to say that somebody giving feedback is invested in your work. And so you have to start from the assumption of goodwill and an assumption of interest and time being devoted to your work because of a love of your work, because of a very positive feeling about your work. And I think that must be what's hard to hold on to is that when you do go through the pages and everything's like, please change this or please do that, it's a bit like, well, did you even like it? And it does it's very like hard to, to keep going back to the bit the, the beginning that says this is amazing this is wonderful these are just things that possibly could be improved um but that that the act of editing is an act of investment and so it comes from a place of positivity and i think that must be what it's really hard to to hold on to when you're first faced with that um i have a tip as well actually which i learned the hard way um for writers who've just got their feedback which is don't be afraid to speak to your editor because as you say you're on the same team you're on the same side you're not having a battle um because i remember having a real struggle with an element of the feedback and i was on this residency as well this very beautiful but quite remote residency in scotland and I would kind of go on these big walks by the beach and like really think it through and get really tangle myself up in how was I going to do this. And I remember I just called you and it just fixed mm. everything because I was it just gave me a different clarity on the situation. And I think we can get really focused on the the words on mm. the page and how a piece of feedback is phrased when actually if we just explain what the issue is and why we're struggling mm. then together you can find a way to yeah to, to kind of fix it and work through it so yeah don't be afraid to speak to your editor because your editor is a person yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're not the kind of scary headmistress that's gonna yes make you not stand in the corner stars. with a dunce yeah cap. yeah they're <laughs> on your side you know you yeah. need to be working together on it so um, yeah. that was something that I finally learned while doing my fourth book and I've only just learned this yeah well I wish we lived closer together because I feel like that would be you know it would be great to be able to kind of meet up and thrash things through in person Mm. more often than we can because you are a long way away from me if only someone would invent a teleporter yeah I feel like I've been waiting so long I know it's been promised for a long time in sci-fi hasn't it a long time Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget The Gloaming is out on the 19th of April. If you love this episode, share it with a friend, review it wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell us what you thought of it at Vintage Books on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. <laughs>